Deep and meaningful conversations to connect, find calm, feel empowered and uncover clarity. Welcome to the Death Dying Diagnosis and Doulas podcast. Hi, Helen. How are you? I am so good, Julie. I am so excited to be here with you. This is just awesome. Welcome to the podcast. Helen is this awesome woman that is a end-of-life doula. And I'm sure that there are lots of people listening that actually have no idea what an end-of-life doula is. So, first up, tell us what that is. (laughs) Julie, those people who haven't heard of it before won't be on their own. So a lot of people have heard of birth doulas. And uh, doula is actually a Greek word, D-O-U-L-A. And basically, it's translated out to being a person of service. So we're non-medical. It's a non-medical, non-clinical role. But we provide support and options and resources to people at end of life. So maybe someone who's got a diagnosis or those people close to them that are actually supporting them or to someone we might be providing information to someone who wants to plan for their end of life long before any diagnosis or ageing comes into play. So a doula, as I said, it's a support role, emotional support, mental support, spiritual support, practical support. To me, the heart of doula, Julie, a doula is about walking alongside someone on their journey. We're not the experts. We're not telling them what to do but rather helping them explore what their options are so that they can make choices aligned with their own values and their needs and their family's issues and concerns rather than, if you like, being shuffled down some path and told this is how this is going to go. The other thing is too that I love about Dooring, Julie, is it's taking this sacred time of someone's life, of end of life, ageing, grieving, It's taking that out of it being only a medical event, which unfortunately is how a lot of people see it and how it's being viewed and and, and really being captured almost in the the medical model. We have to have the medical model there. But doulas really are about being able to take it out of that and bring it back. It's a deeply personal and private and individual and family and community event, not just medical. Wow. That was a great answer though, Helen. Thank you. So you own a business called Preparing the Way. So I'm interested to know how long have you been a doula? How did you find yourself in that role and how long have you had the business Preparing the Way? Well, thank you. I'd never heard of the word doula myself, truthfully, until about six or seven years ago. No, a bit longer than that actually. But I only knew of birth doulas. But in my life, um, I had done a degree in Chinese medicine and acupuncture. I was working in complementary therapies and I was a professional Reiki practitioner for, you know, God, 30-something years. And during that time, I had various roles where through Reiki, I was working alongside people who had a terminal diagnosis, were very ill or dying. So it was Reiki in the first instance that got me in, in alongside people. So I was starting to vigil with people in their last stages with their family, you know, at their bedside in hospital as they were dying. I was helping families get their person home when they wanted to die at home and find a hospital bed for them. So Helen, were these friends or was this a, a paid role at this point? 
So uh, I'd started off a paid role, but it was, as I said, it was as a Reiki practitioner was what originally got me. Ah, yep, gotcha. Yeah. And then, of course, I kept going and I did, in fact, take care of my father at home the last two months of his life. He died at home in my arms as he wanted to. My mum, I lived with for seven years. She had Alzheimer's, dementia. And I lived with her and her was her living carer and she spent the last 11 months in her life uh, of her life in an aged care facility. I was there the last two days of her life with her. I, I, but I, that was family and friends, so I've done that. But, mm. but I've also been paid to do this work for a long time. But, again, I never used the word doula. I didn't know there was such yeah. a thing, right? But, and really it goes back to your question about what does a doula do. If, if you think about those instances I just gave, Really, all I was doing, Julie, was responding mm. to what was needed in the moment. Yeah. And I was advocating for people and I was being the liaison between the medical and nursing staff and, and the family and I was asking the hard questions on behalf of the family and researching things. So, so I was doing this work, but I was just doing my thing. You know, I, I, I never called it doula. I was doing Reiki and, and that was part of it. So then... Back in uh, sometime, we started preparing the way in <laughs> 2015 when I actually got approached to write an end-of-life doula training because I'd had 30-odd years' experience and, you know, recognised that my role was, in fact, directly parallel to a birth doula. And Renee Adair, who's the founder and director of the Australian Doula College, you know, is a master birth doula and... Uh, Renee and I, you know, talked a lot and were close colleagues. And, you know, we used to talk about Renee did the first breath, I did the last breath. <laughs> you know, she did the incoming, I did the outgoing. But, but really when we broke it down, our roles were identical. Mm. And so uh, I created the training with another colleague and we went and did a cert for and training and assessment so we could write it, you know, as it's meant to be in the vet and vocational training system, which we did. And 2015, wrote the course. Then in 2016, the project featured myself and end-of-life doula work on one of their episodes. And it attracted 50,000 hits on an end-of-life doula workshop in 24 hours. That was the level of interest. So, So I've been going now preparing the way for, we're in our sixth year and we now train end-of-life doulas as well as uh, people who are just interested in end-of-life. So there's an introductory course as well as a full-on intensive. And we lead those in Australia and New Zealand, Julie, and really are just so excited about what, what, what's happening and that people are getting inspired to take more action at end-of-life and reclaim this precious time mm, yeah. for them and their families instead of just, as I said before, just going down this this shoot of the medical model, you know, and I also want to put my hand on my heart and say I can't do my job without good nursing and medical care. And yep. I deeply respect the work they do, but that's only one aspect of the pie. You know, that's one yep. piece of the pie, the medical. There's a lot more, and we work across all of that too. What happens when you receive a diagnosis that makes you feel lost, isolated and confused about the way forward in life? Let our doulas provide clarity, help you find information and connection and feel empowered in your choices. DoulaConnections.com.au Do you think the public knows about this role? Like, is it something that people can go to their GP or go to palliative care or go to community services, aged care, and be told that there's this role of an end-of-life doula? 
Look, I think it's emerging. The way I often describe it, Julie, is it's an emerging role. So birth doulas, way more accepted. But when they started, they weren't allowed in hospitals and they weren't being recommended. And they were a bit, it was all a bit, you know, sort of witchy poo, woo woo la la. <laughs> yeah. right? And I think also end of life doulaing has got a bit of a similar rub off reputation. Yeah. But I think it's certainly way more well-known now and we are approaching that time, Julie, and that's what we're really committed to at Preparing the Way is on educating the public, the medical public, the the allied health public, the public public, um, the general public, about that this role exists and it's your right to make choices around your end of life. But But you can't make choices if you don't know what your options are. True, really true. So that's why. So so it's definitely shifting and moving, Julie. We're getting more media now. There's research being done by a number of universities around doulas and their role. Um, You know, we're deep in the process of getting a certificate for in end-of-life doula services into the public space so people can come and do actually a proper vocational level of training. Which And that's going to be a major game changer in the industry because that's, if you like, and it'll be the only government accredited purely end-of-life doula training uh, in the world, actually, and that will be happening early next year. That's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) We will. So just going back again to I've I've even heard the word death doula. There's some other sort of hippie-sounding type death walkers and stuff like that. Like what's the difference between what seems to sort of sit in a bit of the, the hippy-dippy realm, which I might say I like, but how does a, the end-of-a-life doula, because it sounds like if you're really looking at putting this into mainstream certificate four, that you're not you're moving it outside of that realm and more into mainstream. So would that be true and can you talk to that? Yeah, absolutely. Look, you know, I, I am absolutely all for home-based, grassroots, end-of-life care and support so our people can die at home, be taken care of at home after their death, that around 90 years ago we outsourced death. We sent it to funeral directors. We sent it to aged care facilities. We sent it to hospital. So we lost our confidence and our competence at, at, at dealing with that. And, you know, as a very close colleague of mine and yours, um, Libby Maloney from Natural Grace Holistic Funeral says, we have to reverse pioneer right now. We've got to grab back that past. So yep. that, that's often considered to be the realm, as I understand it, of death doulas, of death walkers. It's, that, it's more that process of being at home and doing that in that way. So more grassroots. And here's a stat that I think is quite staggering, that over 80% of us will die in either, and it's over 50% die in a, will die in a hospital, and, over thir- and just under 30% of us will die in an aged care facility. So we're up to around 80%, right? Yep. They, we're going to die in an institution, in a facility, in some building that has a system and it's a medical and clinically-based system. Why we wanted to go to end-of-life doula, and I'll speak to that a little bit more in a moment, but also to the CERT for and get this recognised level of training and professionalism in place is because to get into those venues where 80% of people are dying, 
they, we need a piece of paper. People yeah. want that and people expect that, that we've got oh responsibilities, that we've got infection control training, that we are operating our business in a certain code of conduct for non-registered health practitioners, that we are meeting a certain standard, that we have public liability insurance, that we are operating as a professional. So speaking another moment to the end of life and why I identify and we train the people who come and do our training as end-of-life doulas, not death doulas, not death walkers. And I have no issue with those words, but there's a specific reason that we use end-of-life. And that is that there is many stages to end-of-life. Mm. So I could be quite well, living my life well, no problems, no diagnosis, but I'm thinking ahead and I think, you know what, I want to get my end-of-life plans in place so if something does happen and I do die suddenly or something happens in my family, that they know what I want. I don't want that to be a burden for them. And that's a whole other, you know, another 60-minute conversation. So as a doula, I work with people who don't have a diagnosis. So there's that, I'm living well, right? Then there's the stage where a diagnosis or ageing come into play. And then there's living with that stage or illness or whatever it is. Then there's often palliative care. Then there's the active dying stage. Then there's the time of death. Then there's after death. And are we going to do home-based death care or uh, what are we going to do there? Then we move into funeral rites and funeral care. And then there's care for the living and bereavement after that. Yep. So there's a lot of stages in there. And as an end-of-life doula, I work across all of those. So I'm not just focusing on the death and the home-based after-death care and home-based funerals. And I am 100% for all of those things. Yeah. But the truth is I work across all of those arenas, so I say end of life is a whole spectrum. So that's why um, I, I use that term and why I think it's really mm. important. I love that. that I love it. This potential. Mm. Do you already know what you want? Plan now to get your wishes written down and avoid misunderstandings and possible conflict between your friends and family. Your plan will make you feel empowered and give certainty to others when you need it most. DoulaConnections.com.au yeah, just something you said a bit earlier, it took me back to my, my my grandmother telling me stories about when people died, you know, that they would be kept at home for a few days, that there'd be, you know, the whole thing about the, the vigiling, the people coming to visit. We've really lost something that was was there at some point, and it's certainly there in, in a lot of other cultures. But in Australia, you, it does seem like it's changed. So how do you think we get that back again, that people can actually feel comfortable having people dying at home, having dead bodies in their home, having children comfortable around that death? Like how do we get back to there where we were at one point? Well, I think there's two, there's two parts to that, Julie, in my view. And one is this, that we have to get back there by sheer virtue of the baby boomers and the, the, the large demographic. I mean, it's commonly called the silver tsunami. People born <laughs> in the baby boomers between 46 and 64 are a baby boomer. We are the largest portion of the population right now. So therefore, there is a wave of ageing and death coming, the likes of which has never been seen. And there's already insufficient hospital beds aged care beds, palliative beds, hospice beds already in our current infrastructure. There's never going to be enough beds out there in the public health setting. 
So we have to be able to bring death and dying back home. And that's why if you think about it, NDIS program, My Aged Care, they're providing funding now more and more all the time to help people stay at home longer. Yep. So I think this is where, to me, doulas come in. Doulas can bridge so many of the gaps in end-of-life care at home. So, you know, because not all of the needs, like I remember when I was looking after my dad at home, I was there 24-7 looking after him. Our pal care nurse, we were really lucky. We had a pal care nurse come in for about half an hour, seven days a week. Now, there's a lot of areas in Australia right now where they don't have any palliative yeah. care services, any community-based palliative care services. Something happens, you go to hospital. Aged care, a lot of aged care facilities, people start actively dying, they bounce them into the emergency department and they yeah. fill up intensive care. Mm. Dr. Dr. Ken Hillman, intensive care is full of ageing people. They're trying to be kept alive rather than people yeah. being able to, to for its, their illness to follow its natural course and often do what they want to do, which is die at home. Yeah. You know, there yeah. are more stats, Julie, that say, um, and I've heard differing ones, so I'm going to go on the cautious side. I've heard between 70 and 80. So let's say it's 70. 70% of people say they want to die at home. Only 14, 1-4, 14% get to. Yeah, Why? wow. Yeah, because there are insufficient there are insufficient community based services, and there's insufficient beds, and also often the caregivers, who are and the family, you know, the the primary people around the person with the diagnosis at home, they burn out or they get they just can't manage the level of care needed, and Mm. there aren't enough people there to support this person. So enter the doula. I think the doula is able to come in and bring services together and help support and empower the family to achieve what they want to achieve. You know, they can also be keeping an eye out for things like care of burnout, you know, that, that early intervention, um, harm reduction. You know, we're not only providing a service, but we've got our eyes open. And many's the time as a doula that I've been the one going to the nurses and the doctors saying, you know what, we need to watch out, there's quite a lot of depression here. Yeah. Or this is going on or the pain isn't being managed because this and this and this is happening. And they're just things I observe with my eyes. I'm not an expert, but they're bloody obvious, frankly. Yeah. And so, you know, often it's me as a doula, the family often don't know that they have the right to question or to ask for help or go, I'm not coping really good here. We always, Aussies, we try and bloody mm, suck it up yeah. and get all stoic and push on, you know. And and so I think we do it harder than we need to, Julie. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and so in terms of getting it back in the home, that's how I think it, it has to go. Yeah, I agree. Um, back into the homes. And, and the only way we're going to become more comfortable or death comfortable, you know, as, as Libby talks about um, for natural grace, become more death comfortable is to be around it. Yeah. But to be supported. And I'll, I'll sometimes say to families, Julie, that, um, you know, they'll say, oh, will you be there at the end? And I'll go, if you really need me. But if I've done my job, you won't need me. Yeah. You'll know what's coming. You'll know what to do. You'll have the resources and I'll be only a phone call away. 
Mm. And and that, you know, I say to people what my mission is, I want to do myself out of a job, right? <laughs> yeah. I want to say to a family, listen, I'm going to work with you now and have you get through this so honestly when it's all over, when everything's finished, the dust is settled, you can honestly put your hand on your heart and go, you know what, we did a really good job. We gave mum or dad or my sister or my brother, whoever, you know, we did the best for them. We took care of them really well. We had all those amazing options. That was amazing. And then when death comes and visits their house again, because it will, it's only a matter of time, they go, you know what, we've got this. Very empowering, very empowering, Helen, what you're talking about. Yeah. It is. It is. And I just want to say one more thing, if I can have another little bit, Julie. Yeah. The thing about having people home. I just want to throw a few things out there for your listeners because I bet you there's a lot of things they don't know. For example, I'm based in Victoria, right? So in Victoria, there is no time limit on how long you can keep a person at home after they've died. Now, you've got to be responsible for the care of the deceased body, making sure that it's being cooled appropriately, et cetera. You've got to keep it safe. But you don't have to use a funeral director. Wow. The person in Victoria, you don't even have to have a coffin. You can be buried or cremated in a shroud. People don't know that, right? Yeah. Yeah, In New South Wales, Queensland, other states, you can keep a person at home for five days. Again, I've got to put the disclaimer in there, you've got to keep that body safe and cooled and all of that. But that's what doulas do. Mm. We, we, we arrange all of that. We help people through that. And the difference it makes in people's grieving and bereavement, Julie, mm. is mind-blowing. Yeah. People get to say their goodbye in their own time. Yeah. And then, you know, let their person go forward when they're ready, you know. Yeah. So important. Yeah. Oh, I love that, Helen. One thing you were talking about a a little while back there was about aged care. And, I mean, I'm an old nurse from years ago, as you know, but we never used to send people to hospital. I'm I'm talking about 30 years ago, but unless somebody, you know, broke broke an arm or broke a hip or, you know, something that really did need some sort of medical intervention, it was the GPs used to look after people in aged care. So why do you think we've gone from getting really good aged care support to now everybody being off to the hospital, off to the emergency department. And, I mean, and that can't be a good thing for the family or the person, in my opinion, but I'm interested in your view. Well, look, and I, 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 this is not a, I'm not an expert in this, Julie, but I can only speak to what I've witnessed and what I've experienced. And, and I've also, coming through the training, we've had hundreds of aged care working nurses, RNs, AINs, ENs, health care nurses, we've had a lot do this, and particularly aged care. And, and some of the feedback I hear from them is that in some buildings now, now remember this is all under re- reform right now, mm. so some of these laws might have changed, but some of the current, the past practices have been that I've had reported to me, things like that there aren't any RNs on uh, overnight and things like that. So when someone goes into the active dying stage, they're seen as being really sick so they move them. And it's because there's not enough training of the staff in how to feel comfortable and, and, and able to manage that situation. Part of it is also staff-client ratios. So, and this was in a major hospital. This wasn't even in aged care. I was, wor- I was working with a client in a palliative care unit 
And there were 16 people in that unit, four of whom were actively dying, and there were two nurses on. Wow. And one of the nurses came to me in tears saying, Helen, I'm so grateful you're here with my client because we just can't get there. Yep. And my client was having a very difficult and challenging time. And so I was there with family and things and we were doing our best to support, you know, our person. Mm. So I think in aged care, I think, you know, that it's, it's about lack of training yep. and lack of comfortability. Also, I think too, Julie, it's basically policy and procedure. Some people, some, sorry, some aged care facilities, they actually do have ageing in place and dying in place. So one thing I do now when I'm going to, and I'm just working with someone at the moment who's moving into aged care, it's like I've been like, okay, what are your policies? What do you do when someone is dying? Do you send them to hospital? Because we don't want that to happen. Mm. It's also about advanced care directives, Julie, and people knowing what their choices are, you know, to be able to say, I don't want to go to hospital. I want to be able to die. Because if you think about it, an aged care facility, that's their home now. Yes. That's their home. And why shouldn't they be able to die at home if that's what they've indicated they wanted? And so, you know, I think there's a lot of complex issues mm. around it, Julie. I mean, I, and I honestly believe it will start to swing back. I, I have to believe that. And it's certainly what I lobby for and also what I, you know, talk to places about and, and the doulas that we're sending out to advocate yep. that people have a choice. And if you don't like what the policies are in the place you are or your person is that you're, you know, that you've placed in there, maybe your parent or someone close to you that's in an aged care facility, go find out those policies. What mm. do they do when someone's actively dying? Will they allow, will they provide um, palliative care for that person in their home, in the yep. residential facility, so they can die there peacefully rather than being stuck in an ambulance and laying on a trolley in ED? For hours and days, you yep. know, as happens. This yeah, absolutely. is all out there, real things, yeah. Mm. Are you confused about what your tomorrow might look like? Our doulas can guide you towards clarity, peace of mind and a plan for the future that will give you and your loved ones certainty. Enjoy your time together and minimise misunderstandings. Visit doulaconnections.com.au Just changing tack for a minute, so how many doulas do you train a year like on an average oh gosh on a year gee whiz i wish i'd got my stats <laughs> sorted out before i can here's what i can tell you over the five years let's look at it that way because yeah. i know that over the five years that we've been doing so the intensive training is our four-day intensive training and we present that uh, with a lot of content from natural grace holistic funerals so we really specialize in that after death area as well and uh, we, we have had about 460 people go through that training, the four-day intensive. Yep. Now, that being said, they're not all, not all of those people went on to become an active practising end-of-life doula. Uh, from, we've just done some recent research and getting some feedback from people, and um, I would say fairly confidently that we've probably got 100 of those out there that are practicing. But what a new doula has to confront, Julie, is because this is not a hired role, in other words, you know, you don't go and get a job at the aged care 
facility as an end-of-life tool, and I'd like to speak to more about that or at a hospital at this point. So basically, people have to confront starting their own business. And as an entrepreneur, I know you'll appreciate, and I do as a business owner, that takes something. Mm. You know, that takes time and marketing, and there's a lot of skills. And so someone can be the most amazing bloody doula, but they may not, business may not be their gig. Yeah. Do you get what I'm saying? So I do. I think, I think what I'll do is I'll bring you back for another session and we'll just talk about that because I think that in itself is huge. But I suppose, I mean, there's just so many things, there's so many questions, you know, that, that are coming to mind. So the end-of-life doulas, like generally speaking, what sort of backgrounds do they come from? Like who are they? Yeah, look, that's a really great question. And we actually did some research as part of getting ready for the Cert four and applying for the accreditation. We had to do some research and we were blown away by, by what we found. The extraordinary level of higher education of doulas, the amount of doulas that had had some significant amount of service-related background. So maybe in allied health, maybe they'd had some sort of nursing background or care background. A lot of them had had direct personal experience, a lot of it as caregivers. Yep. Uh, A lot of people too, but here's the thing that was almost 100% in the stat is that, and I hear this all the time, people feel called to this work. Mm. This isn't, uh, well, that sounds like an interesting job. I'll give that a go. You know, that's, that's not <laughs> it. Yeah. Most yeah. people run from death as a conversation. <laughs> so the doulas really are, and I say, Julie, I'm so proud. I get to work alongside the best of the best. Yeah, Because beautiful. these are the people who are committed to making a difference. Mm. They're committed to people not having the awful experiences they had or they're committed to people having the great experiences they had. Yeah, gotcha. And these are people passionate and committed. Often most, the majority, we have people who have done the training from as young as sort of early 20s right through to I think our oldest one was late 70s. Beautiful. And everything in between. Yeah. Oh, I love amazing, that. Amazing, amazing people. Not enough men. We need more blokes, right? Up. All right. So with the time that we've got left, I just want to know what's the main thing you're working on right now? You know, what's the thing that's taking most of your time and energy? The thing that's taking most of my time and energy is the future. You know, we are right at a precipice with end of life dollars with the cert four coming out, Julie next year. We're busy creating gatherings and opportunities once COVID whatever happens there, but a chance for the doulas to actually get together. So ongoing professional development and training, creating ongoing support and business support and after-death support for our doulas, ongoing education there, on getting the message out to people. So we're really big at the moment on creating the future and and really getting ready for, for this wave that's coming. It's coming and we want to be ahead of it. And leading the charge, you know, in, into oh, that beautiful. and going, you know, the water's fine. Come on in. <laughs> I absolutely love that. I have absolutely loved talking to you today. So if if our listeners really want to reach out and talk to you, what's the best way for them to contact you? Uh, well, there's a couple of things. So the website is www.preparingtheway.com.au. Uh, they can also email us at inquiries, with an S on the end, inquiries at preparingtheway.com.au. And they will come to me, uh, my name's Helen, and just address it to me and uh, we'll go from there. 
Ah, that's awesome. All right, well, thank you so much, Helen. I'd love to invite you back again. Would you be prepared to come back for Series 2? Yes, 3, 4 and (laughs) 5. All right, thank you so much. You have an awesome day. We hope you found this conversation and information interesting, helpful and empowering with the Death, Dying, Diagnosis and Doulas podcast. Help us empower others by rating and reviewing us wherever you listen. 